For the first time ever, I am thrilled to say we have an official sponsor for the Dirk Talk podcast, and that's Ariat. I've worn Ariat boots on every job site I've visited over the years, traveling in them across five continents. More importantly, I have yet to find a single project where working folks, unlike me, are not wearing Ariat boots and workwear in every condition imaginable. And there's really good reason for that. And that's because it's phenomenal stuff. And the more I've learned about Ariat and the company, the more I've loved their brand. So with this, Ariat is offering any Dirt Talk listener 10% off their next Ariat order at ariat.com slash Dirt Talk. That's 10% off boots, jeans, and workwear at ariat.com slash Dirt Talk or at the link in this episode's description. With that, let's get to the show. Welcome to episode 59 of Dirt Talk. Today we have Mr. Nick Bazadis of Bazadis Construction in Portland area of the great state of Oregon. And if you haven't seen his stuff on the internet, he is a welder by trade. He does a little bit of everything. His, his company is, is him, his dad, and his wife. So a small operation, but it's amazing how much work they do thanks to Nick's ability to weld just about everything and his reputation in the area. So we talk about how he gets work, how he learned how to weld, how when you're welding, you get burned a lot. And all sorts of other welding topics. We have not really got into welding all that much. And I know nothing about it. I've seen it a lot, but I am extremely ignorant in the world of welding. So I learned a little bit more about welding. I don't know much, but maybe I'll even try welding one day. Who knows? So enjoy this episode of Dirt Talk with Nick Bizatis. So, Mr. Nick, what what would you say you do? Are you a welder? Are you a business owner? Or are you a guy? What's your what's your mo? I would say I'm the utility man. I do a little bit of everything. Uh, I mean, we do as far as a general contractor, we do excavation, small amount of concrete. The welding thing is obviously exploded. Um, in the time I've been doing it. Uh, but I, to be honest with you, there's really nothing we wouldn't take on for in the right situation. So it's not, it's not just welding. It's anything, huh? Pretty much. Yeah. And I mean, the, the whole thing came about is we were doing a lot of excavation and stuff coming out of like 08, 09. And we had some bigger equipment and all that. And everybody and their dog had a dump truck and a tilt deck yeah. and a dozer and an excavator. And it got to be so it not, I mean, there was work out there for sure, but it ends up being such a, a bear to compete that I started focusing. I had the opportunity to go back and do a bunch of welding. And so I hopped into that 
and going into a specialty niche, especially when you can couple something super specialty with like a heavy civil scope and be able to do a little bit of all of that. I mean, that's, it's a pretty dangerous combo. And that I would say welding is definitely less of a commodity than the excavation side of things. It's, and especially what you do, I mean, it's pretty intense stuff. It's like if a weld fails, there's serious problems there. Absolutely. Yeah, there is. There's a lot of, a lot of risk. And, you know, the, I mean, the most you can do is just cross your T's and dot your I's and, and bring your A game, you know, make sure, make sure you're doing it all right. Where did you learn how to weld? Uh, I went to Lane Community College. I was going to the University of Oregon, went to Lane Community College, taking night classes there. And then after I got done with my welding degree, I stayed on and student taught, like just volunteer for probably two years. And I, at that time I had transferred up to Oregon state for CEM. Really? So did you finish at Oregon state then? I did. Yeah. For, okay. Huh. What's, what's the deal with like, what does a welding program even look like? Um, it's a lot, this one is a lot of project based. So it'll be, you know, okay, here's your, uh, you start just, just welding stringers, just welding beads on a piece of metal. And you get the the general motion and, and flow of everything down. And then you move on to like a T-joint. Then you move on to from the flat position to the horizontal position. And then to vertical, then to overhead. And it's just a series of projects, essentially. What, what drew you to welding in the beginning? It was a little bit different. And it, I, there had always been kind of an innate curiosity there. I used to help our mechanic out when I was younger when dad had the full heavy civil side of the business going, um, I helped our mechanic out a lot. And I was always just, it's just one of those things. You're just fascinated by the actual process of welding itself. Sweet. And it's, or at least I was. And so you go, you, you finish up the welding program at that point, you're ca- a capable welder. Mm-hmm. Then you go finish up school, right? Normal school. And then is that when you went to Kerr? So I worked all the way through college working for Kerr, nights, weekends, driving trucks, summertime, you name it. I was probably working 50, 60 hours a week, most weeks, and still going to school, depending on my, my class load. But I would go to work. Uh, you know, nights driving water truck for the rotomill crew, or I would go out and do, uh, or I'd go to work in the shop repairing buckets if things were slow. Dad was running a crew pipe crew. So I'd go top hand or run backfill machine or dig mainline. I mean, I've done a little bit of everything. And so was that, that the, were you, what were you like a, after school project engineer, project manager? What, what, what role was that? Uh, I think I was listed as project engineer, but I was a cross between kind of a project manager, project superintendent, uh, mechanic, welder, pipe layer. I mean, it, it was a little bit of everything. I got sent on a lot of out of town work. So, I mean, I was running fuel truck, fueling and greasing our machines after work. And then I'd go send in RFIs and I'd plan our weekly meeting schedule with the highway department. I mean, you name it. So you've kind of done everything since the beginning. More or less. Yeah. A lot of stuff. Did you grow up around dirt? I did. Yeah. Okay. So what'd your old man do? 
he had designed his construction back when we lived in Eastern Oregon. And he's been in it since late seventies, early eighties. So Bizzatis Construction has been around since 82 when he started it. And he semi-retired in kind of 98, 99-ish. And retirement's just not his gig. So, you know, we kind of kept the kept the options open. We were both working for Kerr at the time. And uh, we had a bit of a falling out with them. And so it was time to time to go back into our own thing. No kidding. So when you you went off on your own, it was you and your old man. Mm-hmm. kind of restarting the family business. Right. Wow. That's pretty neat. And what year was that? Oh, uh, that was, oh, 2011, 20 late. Yeah. 2011. I think it was. So 10 years ago, about 10 years ago, well, uh, coming up on it. My dad is similar, definitely white collar, not blue collar, but similar in the fact that he retired when he was 58 he just turned 67 today, actually. It's his birthday. Oh, and happy birthday, Dad. Yes, he, and he has not stopped working. So yep. he, re, he retired nine years ago, but there's been no, there's been no lull there. He just keeps right. going and can't stop. It's, there, that's and not I think it's just, I, I think some guys are just wired like that. Some guys want to kick back and just go fish when they're all done with their career. And there's guys that, like my dad, he will never, he will never stop. He will never, he will, he'll slow down. Absolutely. You can see it in him as he ages, he will slow down, but he will never stop. He always wants to be a part of that. So what does he do these days? Oh man, he's been out running excavator for me when I've been on a couple of these jobs. He's comes out and does whole watch, helps me with, you know, confined space entry stuff. A lot of times he's there. I mean, just kind of a little bit of everything with me. How's your guys' relationship like working wise? Uh, I would say we have an exceptional relationship because we've been through when, when we were working for Kerr, he got run over by a truck. And so we spent, yeah, I spent, uh, about a month in ICU with him. My wife and I did, um, he was in track you for about three months and then he spent six or seven months in a nursing home, like basically learning to walk again. Holy shit. How did he get hit by a truck? Uh, just a freak accident, man. It was a busy site. He was walking away from a truck and talking on the phone. And, you know, there's backup alarms and stuff going off everywhere. And somebody hopped in the truck just to move it out of the way to, they were doing a big rolling surcharge of sand. Uh. And they backed up, got into backup a F550 truck and he got rolled underneath, basically hit him like square on, rolled him underneath the truck. And he ended up about at the front axle and he was all busted up. Holy smokes. Yeah. And you would think like, even with the backup alarms and everything like that, but uh, until you've been around a job site, you're like, of course I would recognize a truck backing up. Like that's so obnoxious. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I I would never get run over by a truck. And then you go on a job site. It is amazing how fast that can happen. And stuff can sneak up on you like in a second. Mm-hmm. You get off-road trucks and and loud, you know, blades and everything else running that are constantly forward, back, and and backup alarms going off everywhere. I mean, it's tough to start deciphering what machine is what if you've got that much commotion going on. Well, and you just you just kind of become numb to it too. You know what? You know what machines always snuck up on me. At least my pipe layer days was loaders. 
because the engines yeah. engines in the back. So when it's coming at you, the damn thing's so quiet, you turn around and it's right there. And it, oh, holy shit! There's a loader right yep. there. They they sneak up on you like like yeah you you wouldn't think it would happen but it happens all the time even the big ones you can't hear front on absolutely yeah. absolutely and even the the newer machines are even worse because I I mean not worse in that respect but they're they're even quieter yeah so it's even harder at least the old loud gnarly ones I mean at least they were semi easy to hear coming you can hear those yeah yeah but the tier four does not make it any better um so you you guys start the business so did you start the business when he was still totally messed up no that was um 2007 okay so he came back to work and he was still working you know hard as he could cane in hand i mean once he once he got back to where he could walk again, basically. Was it hard for you to see him like that? Um, yes, absolutely. To be laid up in the ICU um, was incredibly hard. Uh, it, it was really tough to see him after the fact, too, and how diminished his physical capabilities were Mm. but his attitude of you know eh, the hell with it like it is what it is i'm upright and breathing and i i could i i could have it a lot worse is is always kind of his mantra and so that's always stuck with me and that like you know no no matter how bad it is it could always be just that little bit worse yeah yeah, that'll put it into perspective quick. Did it change? Did did that change your views on safety at all, or how you worked? Uh, yeah, I th- I think so. Um, I would say I was a lot more cavalier back in the day. Yeah. You know, you start walking across, what well, especially deep trenches, you're walking across the spreaders and doing stuff like that. So, I mean, while I still take risks, they are very, very much more calculated and. Uh, I would say safety is always on my mind in that respect. And that, that incident is never not on my mind. So you're always thinking of it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That puts it into perspective and I've never really lived through that personally, but you have these stories like that one that just kind of get burned into your memory. There's a few that I've always thought about since like day one, you know, the foreman would tell me these freak stories to scare the shit out of me when I was this little kid doing stupid stuff and and like he wouldn't he wouldn't yell at me for doing stupid stuff he would just tell me some terrifying story of someone getting really messed up doing something dumb mm-hmm. on site and that's like okay yeah i'm not gonna do that again because that is absolutely terrifying yeah. um wow so you guys start start the business 2011 and you just buy a dump truck and a backhoe like everybody else no so we already had a mini and we had we actually had a 135 Kaboko too, and we had we actually bought a tilt deck, a Trail Max tilt deck that needed like total rebuild, like it was trashed. So I rebuilt it in a tent in my backyard in the pouring down rain. We had it sandblasted, painted, new Apatong deck. Like we went through it, brakes, uh, decals, the nines. Like it was a new trailer when we got done. A buddy of ours had parked his dump truck 
and he went back to long hauling. So we used his dump truck and then we bought a little dozer and we went out, we did some jobs. We did some substations on the coast, um, some emergency repair work, uh, you know, little bits here and there, um, kind of a little bit of everything. And then as we were doing stuff, the opportunity for me to jump back into welding came up. So we started doing that and that, that just snowballed and that just like absolutely took off. So it went from job to job to job and then it started expanding on that. And yeah, I just kind of followed that down the rabbit hole. Cause I was like, if, if the work's coming to me at this point, I mean, there's no reason to go out and try and beat the bushes to find other stuff and go against you know, 15, a better list of 15 people when I can have work calling me basically. And so is your work that you do essentially your resume, people just see it and they're like, holy shit, this is pretty good. And then it just yeah. feeds off itself. Yeah. I'd say there's a lot of that and there's a lot of word of mouth, you know, especially in the heavy civil community when you work, you know, having our base of contacts from working heavy civil for so many years, now the heavy civil guys know me as, oh, if I need a coffin repair, I call Nick. If I if we got this little bit of welding on the job, we call Nick. And so I'll have jobs that are just like, here, take this and just get it done. You know, because most heavy civil guys, at least up here in the Northwest, they don't want to deal with welding. Yeah. They don't want to deal with fabrication, welding. It's kind of a whole different spec voodoo thing that they don't even want to dive into. So when they can call me and say, here, here's the specs, here's the drawings, you decipher this, let us know if we need to ask the engineer any questions and just get all the stuff to make it happen. No kidding. So, so there's a lot of that. So you're pretty, you're, you're on your own a lot of times. They kind of just yeah, let you do absolutely. what you do. Yep. Yeah. Send us, send us your submittal package early in the job and we'll get you submitted and approved. And off you go. No kidding. So you don't, do you even have to bid jobs typically? Not a lot. No, it's usually like, sometimes I'll give early pricing on, you know, Hey, we're bidding this job. Can you give us a ballpark plug number for welding? Cause yeah. half the time it's something that I'll either, I'll either give them a hard number and go in there and do it for it. If it's pretty cut and dry, but so much of the underground stuff is such a huge unknown that until you can get eyes on it or, you know, physically be there to, you know, take ODs, do, do all the things that you need to do for your due diligence. Like there's so much unknown in that stuff that a lot of times I quote that hourly. Yeah. Okay. So it'll just be hourly. Wow. Yeah. And that's probably, is that emergency work kind of like that too? Emergency works all like that. Yeah. I mean, I'll get calls, you know, five o'clock at night. Hey, we got eight hours of water left in our water tank and we just blew a, blew a pipe apart type of thing. So off you go. And that's the kind of situation where, you know, money doesn't really matter. They just want it done at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and that's not to say I go in there with the mindset that money doesn't matter. I want to build yes. that relationship. So like, I don't need to retire off of this job. I want to be the guy you call for the next job too. So it needs to be fair on both sides. Do you have, are there, are there times where you have too much work? Oh God. Yeah. Right now is one of them. Yeah. It's the ice storm pushed so much stuff off 
Oh, like yeah. it, it kind of accordion to everything at the end of February and the first part of March. So that pushed everything off. And then just a whole bunch of everyone needs stuff right now. So all of this scheduling stuff just falls. I, I have it stacked in pretty tight, like a, a nice neat Tetris game most of the time. And it just all kind of falls into place. And then sometimes there's just that one blip where you can't afford that one blip and it just the whole domino house falls down. That's how our travel schedule it is. It, it's like this, you're trying to piece all of these damn things together and then, oh, sorry, we couldn't get permits, so we can't start this week. It's like, son of a bitch. Now you're yeah. now you're back to the drawing board and rearranging right. everything See because of one three problem. months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's no joke. It's 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 like that a lot of times. Um the, so the company now, it's you, your old man. I know you guys have some equipment. Do you guys have a, have you tried hiring people? You know, while the kids are young, my wife does all the books and stuff too. So there's the three of us pretty well involved in kind of okay. the day-to-day operations. I'm probably majority field operations. Dad's with me quite a bit. Um, I haven't really wanted to venture into that employee realm yet. There's enough independent guys that I know that can I can call in on a, pretty short notice to come help me out. If I get super overwhelmed that I can call in some independent guys with welding, with a little bit of excavation, stuff like that. And, and that goes back to just having a good network of contractors that I know individuals that I know. So, you know, hearing everyone's horror stories with hiring people right now is disheartening to say the least. And that's just not something I really want to take, take on. No, 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 I don't, Blame you. And where you're at, I mean, you can make so much money as just a one man show. There's like, you make a lot of money on the one man show side of things. And then you make a lot of money when you scale and you're much, much bigger. But right. in between, it's like, why would I go work harder to scale the business to make less money? Right. And then have all these headaches and the lab. Like, I totally understand the mindset where it's like, I can Absolutely. just do this myself. I don't have to question the quality of the work. I don't have to train. I don't, I don't have to worry about anything. Like if it's me doing it, I know it's going to be done right. Right. And that's, and that's goes back to what you said, you know, where a lot of the stuff I do, things can go wrong in a hurry. And I, I don't want to send someone else out there to do that stuff with my name on the side of the truck, unless I am 100% behind that individual. And to find those people is really really difficult. And I just don't, with young kids and everything else, I just don't have the time to devote to that right now. It's not that it's out completely for the future, but it's just not a right now thing. Yeah. No, I, I don't blame you at all. And like finding people in the construction industry is one thing. Finding talented welders, that's a whole other ball game in itself. Like finding a young kid ready to get after it. That's good with welding. Good luck. Yeah. Which is a bummer because welding's badass. It's done very well for me. I, I, I can't complain at all. Yeah, it's it's not too bad of a gig. So the like what kind of work would you say you do typically? It's a lot of underground utilities, a lot of that kind of stuff, or just any yeah. Uh, I mean, a lot of it's underground utilities. I got another 42-inch welded seal pipe job to go do down in Eugene this summer. Um, it's for the same contractor as the one last summer. Uh, I do a ton of work for the cities around here, municipalities, um, public works jobs. When 
when contractors get public works jobs, like I'm kind of a, my name's become pretty well known between cities and things like that. So, you know, a lot of contractors bring me on, I'm working for one contractor on the end of this week and they're doing a job, you know, 250 miles away. And they're like, Hey, can you come down here? It's a half a day worth of welding. And it's not that I'm better than anyone they could find locally. I'm a known commodity. Like they know when I show up, what's going to happen. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty nice to be in that position with it. Well, and it sounds like, like me, that'd be a no, wow. That's so cool. People just know you and give you jobs, but that's only because you've done probably thousands of jobs at this point Mm -hmm. at at a very successful level. Yeah. It's taken Mm -hmm. you thousands of jobs to get to this point where people just call you because they know you're the guy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'd agree. Yeah. There's probably, there's a couple thousand under my belt, you know, from, from little small things to bailing out a huge project that they didn't think was going to be able to go because of one certain problem or whatever, and being able to come in and make it happen. That's pretty wild. So you're willing to, you travel a little bit. Yeah. I've been 10 miles from the Canadian border for a hot tap. I've been Southern Oregon and and Oregon all over the place. A lot of Washington out to Idaho. I have a job coming up in Lewiston here probably in the next three weeks, I think, on the schedule. Um, and then uh, Eastern Montana. I went out to Billings for a, it was actually for a guy that worked here in Portland and he transferred companies and he called me and he goes, Hey, you know what I need. You know the parts I want. Here's what I'm I'm looking for give me a price to build this stuff and then come out here and weld for like a week to do, to put all this casing together to get us set up to go. So, so you'll just pack up your truck with your welder and everything. Enclosed trailer. I loaded a bunch of gear up. I wasn't sure what all, what I needed, what I had available there to me. So I loaded an enclosed trailer full of parts and pieces and weld equipment. And then all the stuff I built for him and, Drove to Montana. That's pretty wacky. Do you fabricate too, or is it just welding? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I fabricate quite a bit of stuff, but I mean, I'm known for field welding, for being out in the field. So the majority of everything I do, probably probably 85, 90% of what I do is in the field. What makes a good welder? <sighs> oh, man. There's a lot of facets to that, I would say, but... I would say perseverance in a lot of ways because, you know, the job's going to go sideways. It's going to get really hard, but you got to stick with it and you got to make it happen and you got to, you know, figure it out in a lot of ways. That's a pretty good answer. Same, same with learning to weld, you know, it's going to suck. Like you're going to fail. You're going to, you're going to do this and it's going to fall through and, Nothing's going to go right one day and you're going to feel like giving up, but you know, it's all in that hood time. That what's it? 10,000 hours to master your craft. Mm-hmm. Hood time. So, that's the first time I've heard that. Oh yeah. Well, that's what welding. I mean, you can explain welding till you're blue in the face, but until you get behind the hood and you actually physically start doing it, even the virtual, the virtual simulators anymore are pretty cool. And they will give you a very, basic idea of 
what's going on, motion, hand-eye coordination, how to move yourself, position yourself and stuff like that. But until you're there and you're, you know, kind of on an intimate level with the metal and it's how it's heating up and how things are responding and like, yeah, there's a lot to that portion of it. I've never, I've never welded ever before. Uh, if you can tolerate being burned quite a bit, you probably do okay. I, I would love to give it a shot. I don't know if I'd be worth anything, but I'd love to try it. Yeah, next time you're in town, man, we'll set her up. Yeah, you can put me to work for a day or two. My my hourly rate's not that high. There you go. Yeah. Nice. Um, The projects that have not gone, like what does not going well mean? Uh, um, boy, it can be, I mean, Pipeline stuff like hot taps. Um, we'll take those for example. You know, weld on live lines. I mean, you can burn through. Uh, you can burn through, and then you got a mess to fix. Really? So while you're, so explain hot tapping for people that have never seen it before. So basically, hot tapping is tying into a live line infrastructure that can't be shut down. So perfect example would be if you needed to put in a fire hydrant outside of a hospital on a steel line you would have to weld on the nozzle and then bolt on a valve. And then they would come drill through that valve. And then you would have a live branch off of that pipe. Well, the ones I do are on notoriously thin pipelines, OD steel and CCP, which is concrete cylinder pipe. And there's not a ton of guys that really like doing those because they are 14 gauge. I mean, you'll be welding on 150 PSI 14 gauge, so it's less than an eighth inch thick steel and things can go wrong in a hurry because you can't see the inside of the pipe. So you don't know what kind of shape it's in. That's wacky. I had not, I didn't even think that you could burn through the pipe while you're welding the sleeve onto mm-hmm. it. hundred percent. Yeah. So that would be an example of going wrong in a hurry right there. Have you burned through a, have you burned through a pipe? One, one. And it was in rough shape so it was not surprising that that happened but still unfortunate so you probably know pretty quick if there's a problem absolutely yeah water spraying at you so (laughs) (laughs) what do you do do you have to shut down the shut down the line then uh no not necessarily there's ways you can peen it shut and then you can if you can get it warm enough the heat will actually steam it and push the water back enough while you're welding that you can get a, a small pinhole plugged up. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. I There's did. a lot of don't freak out in those situations. So I've seen tapping. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. That's the time where you need a level head. I've seen tapping on a smaller scale. I've not seen it on anything that big. Yeah. Yeah. There's some big ones I've done. My largest one is a 36 by 54. That was a main supply down. So I welded a 36 inch nozzle on a 54 inch line. That's a lot of water. That's a ton of water. They, they actually, they didn't shut the line down, but they throttled the line down to where it dropped the PSI and not because I was welding on it because they were worried that when I cut the pre-stress or the the tension wrap that supports the outside of the pipe they were worried about a rupture so and the underground stuff too is fascinating (laughs) i mean based on a lot of your pictures you're in some very snug places like this is not you're not sitting in an open field welding gas line 
you're in a hole, like in a trench box, it's either cold or wet or hot or whatever it is, you know, rarely is it, wow, it's so beautiful down here in this hole. And you're weaseled under this line trying to weld all the way around it. Yeah. Yeah. I've gotten better in my old age about making them dig out more for me though. Cause like my body doesn't bend quite like it used to. So when they give you those really tight holes, it's like, come on guys, you can dig out a little bit better for that. Really? So sometimes you have to show up and be like, all right guys. Yeah. There's no way. Every no way. now and again. Yeah. Oh. Every now and again. How about that? What, uh, like how many contractors do you work for? Is it just a handful uh, typically, or is it everybody and their mother? Pretty much everybody and their mother. Yeah. I mean, there's a few that I tend to shy away from. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> but I'll bet if I was to go pull up QuickBooks and look at it, I'll bet the list for the last 10 years is well over a hundred different contractors. Really? Yeah. And that might be, you know, a one-time small bridge piling job or something like that. And then it might be, you know, a, a longtime customer that's pretty repeat. Like when I saw you last week, JW Fowler. I've worked for Fowler for years. Yeah. For probably often, often on, you know, they'll have lulls where they don't have any, any big welding work, but a lot of them are Fowler. I'll bet. God, t- probably almost 10 years, eight, eight years at least. I met, I met Mr. You know, old man Fowler the other day um, down in Dallas at their, at their shop. And, and he, I guess he started in 72 and I oh, asked wow. him, I was like, so how, how'd all this start? And he's like, honestly, I didn't have a plan for it. It just, you know, you see an opportunity right. and you go grab it and then you see another opportunity, you go grab it. And soon enough, that's you know, way. here we are. <laughs> that's the way it happens, man. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how I've gathered equipment and welding certs and everything else is like kind of, I call it the inability to say no, you know, somebody calls you and they're like, Hey, I got this welding project coming up and you're like, Oh yeah, I can do that. Send me a set of drawings. And then you hang up the phone and you're like, shit, how am I going to do that? Yeah. What did you, did you early on, were you like, I am going to become a welder or did you just go to welding school just for the hell of it? And you were like, ah, you know, I'm going to go the, the management route. What, what was the initial plan? You know, I, I took, I didn't really have a plan. I mean, college was one of those things that was where, where I was going to school in Eugene it was definitely pushed on you that you're a failure if you don't go get a degree. Like that's a hundred percent a thing. And, you know, knowing what I know now, absolutely not. I mean, that's, it's just that they don't portray those opportunities to kids. So when I ventured into the college thing, um, originally it was business, but it was my first major. And then I was like, yeah, you know, I'm from Eastern Oregon, you know, this, this isn't really my scene. So I was like, I want to take some welding classes. And it, and it was huge, uh, monster garage time went back when, you know, they were fabbing everything out of like a Ford Pinto type steel. And so it's like, yeah, man, that's cool. So I went and I went to Lane and I had a welding instructor there, Bob Ravel, that was phenomenal. I mean, Millwright, hydraulics guy, everything. 
And I was like, you know what? Hearing his stories, like that is freaking awesome, man. Like that's super cool to be the dude that can swing in and finish or fix stuff, save the day. So I started taking welding classes and I had a pretty decent knack for it, I'd say at the first. And then he started giving me these crazy hard projects like mirror welding under a table in the corner, in the dark and all this different stuff because I don't know, maybe he saw it too and he wanted to push me harder. But I went through that. And once I got done with that, there wasn't ever a part of me that was like, yeah, I want to go out and be a welder. It was just another thing that I kind of wanted to have under my belt, I guess. And by then I had realized that the business route wasn't my gig. So I transferred to Oregon State and went into the engineering program up there. And that's when that's when I really began to enjoy learning and the actual education process. And once, once I found that thing that I really, really liked. Mm. Yeah. That's where we, uh, part ways. <laughs> I couldn't have got out of engineering school fast enough. Going back to monster garage. I grew up watching that show. Are you talking about like the show or just in general monster garage, like Jesse James? Yeah. Yeah. Where they, you know, get together. I remember one was like a walnut shaker out of a Ford Explorer or something <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, just these random awesome projects and you're like, dude, that's cool. Like yeah. I, I'd like to be able to do that. My dad, he still jokes with me about how I'd be watching that. Like as a small child watching Jesse James and it would be, it was on the discovery channel. So they'd bleep all the swearing and he swears every other word. So it'd be like, Bleep, 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 bleep. And he'd be in the other room, you know, as me as a small child watching all this bleeping on TV because <laughs> it's a monster garage. <laughs> yeah. I still I still look at Jesse James's stuff now because he does all the firearms. They're they're oh yeah. Have you seen some of the stuff he does lately? It's crazy. Yeah. Wild, wild. I mean, that's what that's what craftsmanship looks like. I mean, you know, when when you boil it down. That's somebody that's passionate about what they do and really likes to work with their hands. Yeah. He he's taken yeah, it's it's like modern craftsmanship is such an underrated thing in today's society. And when you see it, it's just like, whoa, that's amazing. I mean, some of the guns, they're just the engravings on them, every it's so beautiful. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Um so what is like as far as people wanting to get into welding? Is, is the way you did it the best way to do it? What's, what's the deal? How do you get into welding? How do you learn how to do it? I would say a school is a good place to start or at least take some classes and figure out where and what you want to do unless you've got a really good idea of it already. And then, I mean, my path was having a job that basically you jump in both feet and put you in some really nasty, horrible positions and you kind of, figure it out from there. So, you know, at that point, once you do the really, really hard stuff, then other things don't seem nearly as hard when you go do like just the kind of basic run of the mill welding. But yeah, as far as a path into it, I'd say community college, there's a ton of different welding trade schools out there now that are just kind of independent of community colleges and whatnot. And they're fantastic. I feel like welding is the one trade that you can still find a path into not easily, but it's more, mm -hmm. it's more, it's, it's out there 
much more so than like, I want to be an excavator operator. Like, right. Good luck, dude. I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to tell you there, but welding is pretty, it's, it's, it's most places now. Absolutely. Yeah. Welding repair. I mean, and it, and it really depends what you want to go into. There's some pretty trick specialty niches out there that are going to be a lot harder to find work in. But I feel like if you are a hard worker, can think on your feet, there's a place in welding and fabrication for you somewhere. Well, it's a skill set you can apply in multiple industries. Like I know a lot of kids when oil is good, you go Mm -hmm. to West Texas or you go to the, the up in North Dakota and you make a killing. And then when the times are bad, you leave West Texas and you go home and you go weld for other stuff. You know, maybe it's on equipment or maybe it's for pipeline, Uh, whatever it may be, you can apply the skill to other industries and you can kind of ebb and flow as the market ebbs and flows. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's universal. And it's universal around the world too, because you can travel a lot with welding if you get into that and you can go do shutdowns and repair stuff all over the world if you want to. It's it, You can make a ton of money if you want to travel. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, it's out there. I mean, it's... And, and I don't know. I mean, I think that's any trade. If you are willing to put in the work and travel and do do the things, it's out there. I don't know what the pay scales exactly look like all over the place, but definitely the more specialized you get and the harder you work at that, I mean, the better off you're going to be. Specialized welding is among the highest paying type of craft career I've seen because like the shutdown work, for example. Right. Oh yeah, for sure. It's like you, it just needs to get done. Like there's mm-hmm. no, uh, there's no time to be messing around. And so they pay top yeah. dollar for top dollar people. And that's when like, or, or, or you just the oil fields. Like, have you been to West Texas? I have not. No. So when the times are good in West Texas, it is ridiculous how many F-450, you know, super duties you'll see with beautiful welders on the back driven by 23 year old kids. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. just, it's, and and the whole place is like that. It's not like, it's not like one guy. It's a whole, it's a whole part of the state like that because everyone's making so much money out there. It's really, really interesting stuff. And then beyond the money, everything, especially for what you, you've done thousands of jobs and yet very few have probably been all that similar. There's a lot of differences. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the hot tap stuff is kind of, you know, wash, rinse, repeat type stuff. It's, it's fairly similar. Um, but yeah, I mean, every, every job's got its own special little set of circumstances that makes it that much more interesting. What kind of work do you enjoy the most? Oh man. Um, I've grown to really enjoy the hot tap stuff. I I used to kind of fret it before, um, you know, kind of freak out a little bit, not, not bad, bad, but like you get, you'd get the jitters before you did a bunch of that stuff. Um, that's fun. The challenging stuff is more fun for me. Um, especially if it can be challenging in a not super wet and muddy hole and I can don't have to lay down and, and get super crazy dirty, which rarely happens. But yeah, the challenging stuff where you got to really think about a repair and kind of come up with a 
a good solid fix. And sometimes you get to work with the engineers, which is kind of cool. You know, they want to come out and they want to learn a little bit about how you're going to fix it. You can bounce ideas back and forth about what's going to work and what's not. You chose the wrong place to work if you don't want muddy and wet. Oh, man. I mean, I I don't mind it. I, I'm fine doing it. But, man, some of the rainy days get so old up here. It really does. Because, I mean, to weld on what you're you're literally laying down in the mud, welding up, you know, it's very less than ideal in a hole with traffic whizzing by you up top. Most of the time, yeah. I don't know how you do it. That's, that's, I mean, it's probably quite a bit of fun, but also that's, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Hood down and go, man. Just put your hood down and go, huh? Mm-hmm. What, uh, how do you successfully work with engineers? Because engineers, they piss a lot of people off and I man, went to school enough. with them and I know like it's a very special personality that it takes to be an engineer mm-hmm. and they approach things from their perspective, not necessarily how to build it, how to design it and what the specifications mm-hmm. are. How do you successfully work with these people? So there's a lot of huge ego, a lot of times, and I approach stuff with not a lot of ego and I'm willing to admit when I'm wrong and all that. So you know, I guess in a lot of ways I will come in if, if the engineer wants to puff his chest out, and I'm engineer, then I'll play the dumb welder card and be like, okay, explain this to me in these. And then you can ask a question that a lot of times you already know the answer to, but it can just absolutely bring their logic and their reasoning down. And then they're like, oh, maybe this won't work, or maybe this isn't the best way, or you know, you, you pose the questions, what do you, what if we do it this way? I mean, there's a lot of, uh, I don't know what verbal gymnastics, I guess, with them to figure out a lot of times, Hey, like we both bring something to the table here. We both bring some value. Mine's field-based experience. Yours is drawing it on the computer and knowing the calculations stuff. So I'm going to propose to you what's going to make it easier for me to build it's going to save the contractor money. It meets with the intent of the spirit of the design and what you're trying to accomplish here. It's also something that I've done all over the state in other areas. And I'm going to float that idea to you and see if that's okay. You know, and, and sometimes engineers like this tank job that I'm doing, I proposed a way to do all of the welding from the roof of the tank and not have to get to the interior of this 70 foot tall tank on scaffolding to be able to back weld some of this other stuff. The engineer wasn't having it. So, mm. so be it. I mean. And, and, and that's when you kind of have to pick your battles too. It's like, is absolutely. this really worth arguing over? All right. You want it done this way. I'll do it this way. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of stigma too, especially when an engineer is talking to a welder in the field, you know, whether they know me or they don't. Um, there's a lot of stigma in that they're an engineer and I'm a welder. So they, they approach it that way also. And I try to approach it as we're just two people trying to build a project. Well, I think like both sides are definitely at fault. Yeah. You have the engineers saying, I'm the smart one. You know, I'm the one that knows best here. You're just a dumb welder. 
And then you have the contractors that I've seen. I've seen this so many times over. The engineers are the dumbest people ever. They don't even know what right. the hell they're doing. Like this and this and that. It's like, okay, all right, guys. Like you, Mr. Contractor, you couldn't build shit without plans. How do plans, <laughs> right. how, how do plans happen? Well, they happen from engineers. So one thing, yeah. And then engineers, if you're just designing shit that's never going to get built, then you don't have a job either. It takes mm-hmm. two to tango here. It's it's not one or the other. Yeah, no. And there, I mean, there's some stuff too you see on paper and you're like, clearly, clearly this isn't going to work. And I'm pretty sure this engineer has never built anything like this because there's no way this can work, yeah. <laughs> you know? So that's when you got to start asking like, okay, well, there, here's all these logistical questions with this. Like, sure, maybe we could put this whole thing together in this building if we wanted to scalp the whole roof off and put it all together, but we're going to need to segment this piece to bring it in the building and put it all back together. And what do you want to see here? And like, how do you want to do this? And, you know, so there's, I've started doing some consulting with a few engineers that I've had um, some blowups with, and it's really, really cool to work with them because they will send over something to me and be like, Hey, how's this look? We're thinking about this for a repair. What, what do you think from a field constructability side of it? And I'll be like, uh, you know, that, that'll work definitely. And we can take a look at this option too, which would be a little bit easier to build, you know, if you're not dead set on what you already have drawn and there's this way and this way, and, you know, float two or three different potential ideas to them, because I think it's pretty easy too to be in an office, looking at a screen drawing something and get sucked into one specific way to do things. And it doesn't let your mind kind of open up and think of all the different possibilities and ways to do that. Yeah. Well, and, and you're, you're drawing something that's 3d and 2d. So there's going to be, and and it's not like when there's a problem in the plans, it's not like the engineer was deliberately like, yes, I'm going to deliberately screw this one up. I'm going to really screw this alignment right. up on purpose just to show these guys who's bought. Like, they're not purposefully doing it. Or sometimes it's like, yeah, this was perfect, but hey, there's a gas line here that's not going away that you don't have on the plans. And so we can't build this because of that. And it's like, oh shit, I didn't know that. There's so many right. variables to it. It's right. such an imperfect process, but everyone's out to prove that they're right. It's like, right. what, what, what good does that do? to admit that it's wrong or like, oh yeah, hey, what I drew there isn't going to work. Let me revisit that. Like, yeah. Really all it takes. I mean, it doesn't mean you suck at your job. It just means that one route of it wasn't going to work and we need to look at something different. Yeah. It's, it's so, so interesting how that, how that works. And the, like, are you looped in on the way early side of things sometimes like on design builds where they're just even going through the feasibility of a project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Like they're talking about widening 205 and they talked to me early on about it. And there's a 30 inch water transmission main that runs underneath 205. And so they want to widen the bridge and they're talking about sliding the entire bridge out and then building two new lanes in the middle of it. And they were wondering what the options are for tying in that steel water line. And I was like, I mean, I would have a prefab fitting set up there to tie it in. And I'll bet you wouldn't be down, you know, more than 24 hours getting the ends tied in if you staffed up and had enough stuff going on. Hmm. 
Did you see the, that reminds me, there's a bridge that they're about to slide over the interstate near downtown Portland. Oh yeah. The steel one. Yes. Wild. Yes. Yeah. I, who's the general on that? I didn't, I I haven't even seen who the general is. I have no idea. I drove by it the other day and I'm like, holy shit. They're going to slide that thing across the entire interstate. One of these nights, I'm not sure how they're going to do it, but that is going to be really neat when they do. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to be out there because they'll close 84 right yes. there. Yeah, they'll have to close the close the whole thing down. And yeah, everything's prefabbed up top. So they're just in and one it, night or a weekend. And it doesn't look like there's a center bent to that either. No. So it looks like it's going to be like a 300 foot clear span. Just whoop, out she goes. Yeah, how's that for cool? Yeah, that would be pretty neat to see. They slid, so 213 down here. Um, okay, so where you went to Tri Cities for Fowler, yeah, right down at the bottom of the hill. If you would have gone up the hill, that bridge that crosses the railroad tracks right there, there's a couple sets of railroad tracks, and uh, I think it's Clackamas River Drive goes underneath it. They built that bridge off to the side, they demoed the old bridge and slid the new one into place over a weekend. There's an ODOT time lapse video I'll try and find and send you. It's pretty cool. That's so nuts. Yeah, it's a wave of the future, man. I mean, especially for these like really busy viaducts that just, you know, there's like 50, 60,000 cars just on that little highway a day. Well, and yeah, highways are one thing and then the railroads are the other because the railroads are like, no, 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 you're we're, we're not doing this whole shutdown thing. <laughs> right. There's too much money here to be made. We're going to keep going. So you can do whatever you want around us, but we don't stop. Yeah, railroads are a... A special one for sure. Have you done railroad work? Oh yeah. Yeah. We worked down at the, so right by the, where they're going to slide that bridge. We did a bunch of low overhead piling underneath I-5 there. And so we were driving pile like 20 feet away. They're crash barriers for the actual trains in case they derail. They won't hit the pillars that hold up I-5. Whoa. So these, these piles, they were supposed to go 80 feet and we ended up sinking one of them like 240 feet or something. It hit a soft spot. So we Whoa. were well. 12, 12 foot piling at a time. Cause that's all we could fit underneath I five there with the hammer. Oh. So we were doing low overhead driving. And so we'd weld a 12 footer on drive it. And there was times when it, the hammer hit it twice and it'd drive it 12 feet and you'd be back to welding again. And so we were just welding and welding and welding and welding. But every time the train came by, here's your 20 minute break. Cause the thing had yeah. 250 cars on it. So you'd sit there and wait and, you know, watch all the graffiti go by on the train cars and back at it after that. The, well, and, and what's fr- frustrating is you'll get all set up and everything like that. And then, oh shit, train's coming. And now you have to yeah. undo all your, all your work you just put in, wait right. for the train, you go back to it. And it's like that for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It doesn't stop. Right. That's how, especially the right there's the main east to west, north, south hub for like Oregon. So that's where all the trains come in from Eastern Oregon and turn and head north or south on along the I-5 corridor. We, when I was driving pile for Union Pacific, that's exactly what we would do. We would drive, we weren't hitting it twice though. We'd be whacking on it all day. And then the welders would come back. They would work all night to weld more. A splice on. Yeah, yeah, splice it. And then we would drive it again the next day. And then they would come back that night and cut them because usually it was like, they're like 40 foot sticks and we were going like 60 ish feet. 
Mm-hmm. So then they'd cut them, put the put the bent caps on, weld all that, and then we'd come and set set the girders on top of that. So it was like we'd be flip flopping with the welders back and forth every every shift. Yeah. Um, what's it like working with different people all the time since you're moving around so much? Is it frustrating? Is it fun? Is it a mixture? I'd say it's it's pretty cool. You get to see a lot of different personalities, and I I get along with. 97% of the crews and the guys out there, uh, I get along with really, really well. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would say I have a lot of fun, fun with it because it's like seeing a bunch of old friends. A lot of times you go to a job and you haven't seen a guy in three years and it's, oh, how's your kid doing? Did he graduate from high school? And what's he up to now? And, you know, just everything else. That's the fun of my job, too. You get to meet a lot of cool people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tons of cool people. Yeah, you're in a unique spot because you're with new people all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it actually kind of gets frustrating when I'm on a job for like really long term because you're kind of like, oh, man, I'd like some new scenery. Like, yeah. what's long term? Uh, I've been on one job that was three years long, off and on. That was a, that was an early in my career, like, and I'm really thankful for it because that was kind of a Kickstarter. Uh, it was a a big. Uh, Oh, water job for the city. And there was a ton of seismic upgrade stuff at vaults all over the city. So we'd go dig up all of these different vaults all over the city and do like new seismic harnesses for all the pipes going in and out of these vaults. And then there was, you know, the big reservoir that they put in and tons of pipe. I mean, that was, I welded everything from three quarter inch to 92 inch pipe on that job. What, um, Yes, I'm running out of questions here. We're we've covered a lot of ground. What's the deal with Miller? Like how do you how do you work out something like that? So I was down at Con Expo, what not the last one, but the one before, and I was talking with Ben. And Ben, I didn't know it at the time, was like he was high up in Miller. And so I was looking at the air packs and we were talking and he's like, Oh, you're thinking about buying one. I was like, I own two of them, you know? And so we got to talking and I was like, yeah, you know, I run this thing. I run both of them super hard all day long. I plasma, I weld aluminum, stainless steel, seal everything off of these. Like I put them through their full paces. Like, uh, you know, here's some of the improvements I think you guys could make like in this realm and this realm, like a couple little different changes here. And so he was like, hey, after Con Expo, would you be interested in jumping on a conference call with us? And I was like, sure. So we had a little, you know, hour-long conference call. And I talked to a couple of the engineers and stuff. And so I started just behind the scenes, working with them a little bit, answering questions, working with some of the weld engineers and stuff like that. And that thing kind of snowballed too. And I got involved with a few more people. And then they needed to do some product testing. So they were like, Hey, would you be interested in doing some product testing for us? We'll basically send you this and you run it and just run the socks off of it and see, you know, shortcomings and, and we'll try and do all this stuff, you know, and find, find anything we need to improve. And so we started doing that and then it blossomed into, uh, Hey, we want to shoot some stuff. It was actually for con expo. They were like, we want to shoot some, uh, you know, literature some posters some videos stuff on this all this new technology that we're coming out with would you be interested in doing that so i set up like five different jobs here around portland and we went around and did some photo shoot stuff and some some shots of different things and 
it's just kind of, you know, incrementally stepped up from there. So you're the, you're like one of the poster children for Miller now. I don't know about that, but I'm, I'm a, a guy that they've taken some pictures of. And I mean, I'm involved with the engine drive, the power generation side of things, but not, not so much all the rest of it, but they're, they're a great group of folks that I, that I get to work with are, they're awesome. I really like them. Uh, this might be, well, I know this is a dumb question. What's, how does a welder work? Uh, well, the new ones, old ones would be, you know, copper windings and gen- power generator and stuff. And it would be mm-hmm. basically wired right off of that. And the new ones are, I mean, they're computers. They, the engine runs a generator and then the generator runs through a whole bunch of electronics to give you the, all of the different welding processes that you want to run. Mm. I mean, the new ones you can update with a USB stick and you can update the files for art characteristics and two, they can write custom tunes for your welders. And I mean, it's, it's pretty SpaceX, you know, Jeez. For, as far as, as far as welding goes. That's fancy stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Huh. It looks, it looks so elementary, but I guess there's a lot to it. It's not the mm-hmm. same thing every time. I think it's just like anything, like you look at an older cat excavator versus a newer cat excavator and, you know, the older cat excavators were, you know, hydraulic, you know, hydraulic pilot and everything was, you know, there wasn't an electronic light on some of the older ones, probably for, for better or for worse. True. There's goods and bads for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to wrap it up, what do you have any welding tips and tricks? Any advice? Ooh, for like the general population. Yeah. Don't burn yourself. You're, you're going to get burned. So you got to just kind of live with that. Don't try and don't set yourself on fire. Yeah, what what do your forearms look like? They're pretty scarred up. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got some pretty gnarly scars. Yeah. Chest too. You know, when you get crammed in underneath some of those hard spots, like stuff will fall on you and it makes its way into your clothing, no matter how, you know, bundled up you are. And it's not like you can just stop and get out of there and take your stuff off. You got to sit there and let it burn sometimes. So it's not, that's that's probably the least fun part of the job. That's a good quote. You just got to let it burn sometimes. (laughs) I I will get, sometimes when I'm, when I'm taking pictures of welders or someone's grinding, I will get a little too close every once in a while. And, and you know real fast when you're a little too close because it starts yeah. to burn or you start to get hit by little pieces of metal that are very, very hot and, and you, yeah. uh, you get away very quickly. Those in your eyes are the worst. Don't get them in your eyes. And those will stick to your camera lens too. So be careful with your glass. Oh, really? Absolutely. Yeah. That's interesting. Huh. Yeah, that's, that's probably a good way to ruin like a thousand dollar camera lens. Wow. I had not even thought of that. Mm-hmm. Because, I, I put the, I use my GoPro a lot when I do stuff and I buy the, the glass stick on protectors, because if you grind or weld next to those, that stuff just finds that glass and it just peppers it and no, it will look, it looks like you're looking through a kaleidoscope after a while. Huh. I kind of want to try it, but also I don't want to try it because that's expensive. I can send you one. Yeah. Yeah. Same, yeah. Same. Send me a souvenir. I'll just claim it as my own. There you go. To show how, how hardcore I am. Uh, so any 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 tips and tricks beyond not just letting it letting it burn every once in a while? 
Uh, I mean, I'd say it's just like any, any other industry. If you're wanting to get into it, you just start at the bottom and kind of work your way up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Even if you're not welding at first, just getting around welding. Absolutely. And, and there's always, you know, no matter what you're doing, even if you're just sweeping the floors in a welding shop, look around. I mean, there's knowledge to be absorbed by watching old timers work all over the place. How do you feel about robotic welding? I think it's got its place. I don't think it's ever going to take the place 100% of welding. And even if it does in certain productivity aspects, uh, there's going to be somebody behind that robot programming it that needs to know how to weld to program that welder Yeah, that or that robot. So I don't have too much fear of robots taking over my, uh, what I do. Um, I kind of joke like when, when did they say the robots are going to take over? Sometimes when you have a rough day, it's like, (laughs) sign me up, man. Where do I buy one? Yeah. Yeah. It's the, they're pretty slick, but it's for those very repetitive tasks of, yeah, Yeah. I'm going to build this dozer frame. Yep. I'm going to build another dozer frame. Yep. Another dozer. It's like, it's just the same thing over and over and over again. And that's something you don't really want to be doing anyway. You don't want to be doing the same thing over and over. Very repeatable quality with those. Yeah. And, and a robot in that situation, like it can outperform a human as far as quality is concerned because it doesn't get tired. It doesn't have bad days. Its wife wasn't mad at it at, at it, you know, the night (laughs) night prior. And it, it, it just does its thing over and over and over. So in that situation, great. But as far as hot tapping a 50, whatever inch line, you, you need a guy with your experience to figure it out in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Likely it's not gonna, I mean, and the, it, one of those things too, where, you know, fit up's gotta be just right. All the parts are jigged perfectly in the right place for the, for the robot to do its job. So when there's constantly changing variables with a job like that, that's not a super good spot for anything like that. No. And even the robots that'll set up to join just like two pieces of sheet steel or something like that. Like there's all the setup required for those things in the first mm-hmm. place. Like they don't just like, Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, that's what I need to do. Like you need to, you need to spend a lot of time setting that damn thing up to begin with. For sure. Yeah. It's just like the plasma table. I mean, you got to zero it and make sure everything, all your settings are right and everything else. So when you go to cut out a piece of steel, it's not just, you know, hit the button and it goes, there's a lot of programming set up for it. Those, those tables are, they boggle my mind every time I see them. Mm-hmm. I got, I got one probably, I can't remember when I bought mine seven, eight years ago. And just for the small stuff that I do, it's a game changer, you know, not having to cut out 50 different parts. I can just get the table set up to do it and it'll knock them all out. That's, That's nuts. Yeah. And overnight, like, you know, just that tank job, they forgot to throw in some of these big flat uh, retaining washers that with this kit of uh, a bunch of cathodic protection stuff, I took some steel home and cut them out overnight and installed them the next day, you know, so it keeps, keeps the job rolling. We're not waiting for parts to show up on a job that, you know, is critical path for me to get all of my stuff done. So everybody else can move in and get their stuff done. And that's an important note is like the whole, it's not my job mentality doesn't get you very far. 
Like no, the more value you can provide in a situation like that, especially when a contractor is relying on you that heavily, like if you can saddle up and 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 pull that weight, then that goes really far with a lot of contractors. It goes far just anywhere. It's like you weren't liable for forgetting those pieces. And so you could have been like, well, sorry, guys. I don't know. You you forgot them. I didn't forget them. But it's like that doesn't do anyone any good. It doesn't do them right. any good. It doesn't do you any good because now you're waiting. Like, and if you're just waiting, you're you're not making as much money or helping solve problems or anything like that. It's just, yeah, do whatever you need to do to solve the problem. I like mm-hmm. that mentality. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm more of a solutions guy than a problems guy. Yeah, and I like in my position now. I I'm starting to get very frustrated when people point out problems. It's like I don't. I don't care if there's a problem, just go fix it. I don't need to mm-hmm. know that there's a problem there. Like, why are we even talking about this? Just go make yeah. it happen. Like, if you need my advice on something, great. That's one thing. But don't just say there's a problem and then, okay, that's that. Throw your hands up. Like, come to me with a solution for that problem. And then yeah. we can have a conversation. Yeah, I'm all day long. But yeah, if it's just a problem, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, beyond the, the plasma cutters too, but I think as cool as those water water tables. Oh, water jets are badass. Yeah, yeah the, the water, but like the really high end water jets mm-hmm. that can cut through like a foot of steel. Oh, everything: glass, granite, rubber, plastics, brass. I mean, you name it; they'll cut everything. I don't know how they how they can do it. Like it's just mm-hmm. with water, it's high like, pressure water and garnet. Yeah, they put like an abrasive in there for the really, really thick stuff. Do they? They put an abrasive yeah. in there. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, a really abrasive sand. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah, soft stuff they won't have to. But and I'm I'm not super well versed on water jets, but just knowing what I know about them, like if you're going to cut rubber, you can do that all with just water pressure. But if you're going to cut, you know, steel and other stuff like that, a lot of times they'll put garnet in there, and it and it helps the abrasiveness of the cut, you know? The more you know, the more you know. Well, Mr. Nick, I uh, I guess I can let be- let you get back to your day. Cool. I get all loaded up for Monday morning. Yeah, yeah, you have shit to do. So I appreciate you. How was, how was Eugene? Was that good? Eugene was good. Yeah, just a little quick trip down there, see fa- uh, family and kind of hang out. and. Sweet. Where do people find you if they want to see some sweet welding pictures and videos? Uh, pretty much just Instagram for me. Instagram and LinkedIn. Uh, Nick Bazadis on LinkedIn and then uh, Bazadis N on Instagram. Bazadis. What was N. it? Oh, Bazadis N. Yeah. Okay. All right. I highly recommend checking his pages out because that's how I found you initially. And you do some really cool shit on there. You've posted, you've posted a very long time too. You've been at it a very long time. Uh, God, when was I? I was, I started it just after Con Expo, the one, so seven years ago now. That's a while. Eight years ago. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, when I found you, I'm like, man, this guy's been at it for a long time. He has all sorts mm-hmm. of pictures from just about every damn job. Have you got in trouble posting pictures on the internet? 
Um, I've gotten some stock talking tos, and I definitely ask the questions in sensitive areas. I went down inside a dam, uh, and I was very, very cautious to say, okay, can I post pictures of this and ask that questions? And then uh, I ended up sending them the pictures that I was thinking of posting, and they gave me the thumbs up on what I could and could not. So because some of them are N- NDAs too, you know, so they're uh, yeah. definitely don't. Uh, don't get me started on those, but like a dam, for example, is interesting because that's potentially a target for terrorism, which is why they're very particular yeah, about it. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's some TSA stuff. There's some TSA stuff in some pretty interesting areas too. Like even the water tanks, like yeah. some of those have TSA jurisdictions on them. Yep. Yeah. Well, a water treatment plant. Yeah. You sneak something in there that's not supposed to be ingested and you Mm -hmm. just poisoned, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people pretty quickly and they don't even know about it. Yeah. The security on a lot of those places has exponentially gone up in the last like 10 years that I've been working at them pretty intimately. Yeah. It's, it's a little spooky too, when you start to think about it or sometimes Mm -hmm. like, I'll honestly just drive into treatment plants and I'm looking around, I'm like, is no one going to, no one going to say anything about this guy just driving into a treatment I guess, plant? I guess I'm I'm here. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm playing. I look like I'm supposed to be here. I'm wearing a vest, but anyone can go buy a vest at Home Depot. Come on, guys. At least right. at least give me a hard time. Like I'm, I, I want to feel good about drinking this water. Yeah, yeah. All right, Nick. Uh, Nick Bazadis of Bazadis Construction. I appreciate it. Awesome, man. Great talking with you. Thanks. Okay, and that concludes episode 59 thank you so much for listening if you want to see nick's work check him out i would highly recommend checking him out on instagram it's bezatis and b-e-z-a-t-e-s-n also in the show notes and as always please continue sharing the podcast i appreciate you listening to this episode And we will have another one for you next week. Stay dirty and we'll see you in the next one.